Welcome to episode 57 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and Reformation Roundtable is a production of Christ Covenant Church here in Lewis County, Washington. We are meeting in Centralia at the moment, and we were planted on May 23rd of 2021. The following audio comes from our Lord's Day service that took place on August 1st, 2021, and we heard a wonderful sermon from a a man by the name of John Shaw, who is from the Portland area of Oregon. John and his lovely wife, Debbie, made the drive north to Centralia to preach for us, and the following audio is that sermon, as well as many other portions of our Lord's Day worship service. We follow a pattern called Covenant Renewal Worship, and the basic idea behind that is that God calls us into his presence. When we are in the presence of God, we're reminded that we need to confess our sins. He is holy and we are not. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus forgives sinners. And so we are assured of his forgiveness, where we are then consecrated by the preaching of the word, by um, the reading of God's word, by the uh, giving of our tithes and our offerings. That's the consecration portion. And then after after we've been consecrated or set apart for the glory of God, he then feeds us through communion. And then after we've eaten this peace meal with the Father, Uh, feasting on the broken body and shed blood of the Lord, we are able to be commissioned back out into the world. If this kind of thing sounds like something you'd like to join us on, we'd love for you to be a part of this. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, and there you'll find the latest meeting times as well as locations. That's lewiscounty.church. Hope you enjoy the sermon, and I really hope that you join us for worship. All right, our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from Psalm 145, verses 4 through 7. Hear the word of God. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are your people, and for generations we have heard tell of your works. We ask that as we come to you in worship this morning, we would meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. We ask this in faith and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We follow along with me in your bulletin. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 145. This is verses 17, 18, and 19. There will be a call and response. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. Lift up your hearts. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thank you for being righteous, gracious, and near to us. We ask that as we come before you, we would call upon your name in truth. In doing this, we ask for you to fill our hearts with a reverent awe of you and to discover that this is what our hearts truly desire. 
Hear us, we ask, and save us. Bring us into your presence in the heavenly places this morning as we worship you in the beauty of holiness. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. We have gathered this Lord's Day morning for worship. We're in the midst of it right now. I beg your pardon for stating the obvious, but have you ever asked yourself why? Why are we here? Why do we do this every week? The reason, of course, is because God commands it, and that's good enough for us to obey. If that was all we knew, that would be good enough. However, God never gives arbitrary commands. As a loving father, he's not the do this because I said so type. Behind every command is a wonderful blessing for obedience. It's a wonderful blessing for those who follow and a wonderful reason as to why. Understanding the why is not as important as obeying. And in many cases, we don't even get an answer to our why questions. Think about Job. He never got a, he never understood why all those things were happening. At least we're never told he did. But if we're obeying cheerfully, we should eagerly seek whatever answers to our why questions God will reveal to us. If we're obeying cheerfully, we should be asking why and taking whatever revealing he gives us with thankfulness. So, back to the question of worship every week. Why do we do this? We worship every week because we believe in the centrality of worship. By centrality of worship, I mean that worship is the central thing that we have been created to do. And you notice this because everybody worships. Everybody does. The heathens, the atheists, the pagans, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, we all worship. We were created to worship. True worship, the true worship of the triune God, is what we're doing now. And it's all of this. It's not just the singing. Um, But worship is what directs, it informs, and it drives everything we do in our life. Every aspect of our life as a Christian should be understood through the lens of corporate weekly worship with the body of Christ. Prior to his ascension, our Lord taught us that our task was to go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize the nations, and teach them to observe all of God's commandments. This means that as a church, our mission, that's our local church mission and our, the broad church mission, is twofold, birth and growth. We must offer the new life of the gospel so that the unbelieving world can be born again into the new life of Jesus. And we must also grow and be discipled along the way and disciple the nations in that new life. Birth and growth. Now, this twofold mission can only be done through weekly corporate worship of Christ. It cannot be done alone. We can't do this on our own. And what we gain today will inform how the other six days are spent. I like to tell my kids that the Lord's Day is the central pin, or some metaphor of that kind. It's the central thing on which all the other days of the week are oriented. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, well, we're looking back to Sunday. We're looking back and looking um, at what we've been taught and what we've been commissioned to do. And then Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, we're looking forward to the coming worship of the King and preparing our hearts for that glorious event. 
In other words, this is not a once per week thing that happens for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. What we're doing here today should affect every other day of your and my week. By worshiping together, we are fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi 1, chapter 1, verse 11, which states, For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That's Malachi chapter 1. That's talking about what we're doing right now. The world has been entirely changed as a result of people like us gathering for weekly worship, being changed by that worship, and then going out and setting the world on fire for Christ. Cultural renewal, political common sense, those are good things, but they come downstream of the centrality of worship. You can't start there. You have to start here. Because the church, as the body of Christ, is central to God's plan for saving the world, her worship of Christ is central to that plan and makes her what she was meant to be, a city set on a hill. However, this world-shaking good news can only come about when we recognize our own sinfulness and our need to faithfully confess our sins. So as you are able, will you kneel with me? Please rise for the assurance of pardon. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He is slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works forever. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the work you are doing here. We thank you, Father, for your grace poured out upon us, upon this body. We thank you, Father, for those you have brought to help and to share and to bring the word We ask, Father, that you would be in our midst this morning as you have been already, that you would continue to be here, you would continue to fill us with your spirit, that we might, as we look into your word, understand and our hearts might be brought closer to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as... Joe mentioned earlier, my name is John Shaw, and it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Not just a pleasure, it's a privilege and an honor. As you are currently in the midst of a pastoral search, decided this morning that I would talk about, from the Word, what God looks for in a pastor, what pleases him in a pastor. And as the passage we just read speaks about elders, uh, it's pretty much unavoidable. We're going to talk quite a bit about elders. 
this morning. And, uh, and the things I have to say about elders are not meant in any way to be reflections on your elders, because uh, I don't know your elders, but I know that they are in the midst of a great work here, and that God is in your midst in doing so. So if something happens to fit, fine. If not, that's okay too. <laughs> now the word is full of relevant teaching and exhortation, as well as cautions for elders. Before I go further, I should note too that it appears from your bylaws that you're two office church, uh, meaning that your pastor is going to be one of your elders. And so, again, it is appropriate that this is mostly about elders here. So, you know, much of the teaching about shepherds in particular is found in the Old Testament, but it's as relevant and worthwhile today as it was when it was first written. God pours out his heart on this matter, and it is well, and it, is, and it will do us well to review these topics. You know, most of us are familiar with the qualifications given in Titus for elders. Just to briefly review Titus 1, starting in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, holy, upright, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. These qualifications describe a man who gets along well with everyone, a man of good character, a man who is knowledgeable in the word and handles it, and others well. The emphasis on family matters provides evidence that the man does indeed do well in close community of intimate relationships. Presumably this will serve well in the close community of the church. But what exactly is the job of elders? Going back to the passage we opened with, 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Note, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he describes himself as a fellow elder, thus clarifying that he is teaching other elders how to follow in his steps. He tells elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Note, first, elders are shepherds. As shepherds, they are to serve gladly of their own free will, their own choice, the work may be long and demanding at times, and shepherds must love the work, not seeing it as an obligation or a duty. We will take a closer look at the job of the shepherd a little later, but continuing on in verse 2, shepherds should work not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shepherds are to serve eagerly, not for personal gain, but the love of God and of his people. Now, you can make that easy. You love your elders back, and you make their job easy 
and they bless you. And that's how God intends it to be. Shepherds are to serve eagerly, not for personal gain. And they're not to be domineering over those in their charge, but examples to the flock. Shepherds are to lead by example, not by compulsion. In this day and age, we are strongly influenced by a business model of the church. Strong leaders take charge and control and expect others to follow their commands. But this is not quite the church model. Pastors and elders are to lead by example, inspiring others to emulate their style. This communicates love and worth to those in their care. Consider how Jesus shepherded his people with works of kindness and mercy, always teaching by word and example, except when dealing with some of the enemies of the kingdom. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Shepherds know their reward is future, not present. They look forward to well done, good and faithful servant by our Lord himself. We're beginning to get a picture of the shepherd ruler of the church. We turn to Psalm 23. Psalm, I'm sure most of you know, probably many of you have memorized. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The Lord provides not just for our needs, but our wants. These include rest and peaceful surroundings, plenty of good food and drink, and still waters that calm the spirit. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But our wants extend beyond simple physical needs and pleasure. Our Lord restores our souls and teaches us how to please him, that we might be confident and rejoicing in his presence. Reminds me of Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is your soul in need of restoring? Choose a pastor who has a heart for doing so. We will come back to this as well. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Our shepherd provides protection and safety. We fear no evil while under his care. He wards off devourers with his rod and staff. He walks with us even though, even through the most difficult trials of life. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. A good shepherd promotes safety and security such that we may rejoice and know deep love, even in the presence of our enemies. He edifies and builds up the members of the flock. Then our lives are full and overflowing and thereby witness to our enemies of God's love for us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our shepherd promises blessing throughout our lives and our lives to come. A good shepherd lives these characteristics and conveys them to us. 
He maintains an atmosphere of love, trust, safety, security, sufficiency, and confidence in God. Now, this is a very high calling. (laughs) But this is what our Lord sets before us as the calling of our shepherds and our rulers. How does he do this work? I want to go back to the Old Testament a little bit, look at some more difficult passages that shed light on this, and look forward to Christ's coming and his fulfillment of the true shepherd. And these, of course, are written for our example and our understanding that as elders, we carry out the work of shepherds. Jeremiah 3.15, Jeremiah And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. But Jeremiah contrasts this with bad shepherds. What are bad shepherds? To understand what a good shepherd does, we need some sense of what a bad shepherd does, what does not please God in his shepherds. Jeremiah 23, starting at verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more. Nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. God cares deeply about his children, each and every one. And he brings us together, as Joe was saying earlier. And here we find the fellowship and the peace and the love of God and the strength to accomplish his purposes. Here's where the Holy Spirit dwells, and here's where the Holy Spirit encourages us and strengthens us and mold us into his image. God cares deeply for his children. And when rulers do not shepherd them properly, they scatter. Think of a flock, you know, and a flock of sheep, and a wolf comes, and the shepherd doesn't do his job, and the sheep scatter all over the place. And this greatly displeases God. God wants every one of his sheep cared for, not just the popular ones or the well-to-do, but the sick and the lost, the unlovely and unwanted. For he loves bringing life from death, wholeness from brokenness. Another passage with great detail about the shepherd's job is found in Ezekiel, chapter 34, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. A shepherd must feed the sheep. A shepherd interested in making a name or doing a great work or using the flock to enhance his own standing or increasing his status of wealth fails to do the job. He must feed the sheep in all the ways we saw earlier. goes on to say, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, 
The injured you have not bound up. The shepherd must care for the weak and the sick and the wounded. The job calls for humility, care, and concern, prayer, visitation, knowing the needs of every sheep in the flock. No man can do this on his own. He must be an example. God gives elders as examples. And what are examples for? The follow. And this means that the elders should be training others, that others should be picking up this work and participating in this work. This is not just an elder's work. This is a shepherd's work who's there to train the sheep, in this case, to train you, others of you, who God calls to these ministries, maybe not in a formal calling, but certainly in an informal calling to represent God to everyone around you. The passage continues, The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Losing sheep is strongly condemned. The shepherd goes after the wandering sheep and restores them to the fold, not by domineering, but by addressing whatever the issues might be, in such a way as to convey God's love to them in tangible ways. The good shepherd goes after the lost and restores their souls. We've seen this before. The shepherd is to rule by example, not by coercion. He is to restore in the spirit of gentleness, not manipulate by harshness. Of course, Jesus is our example in his dealings with his disciples, with sinners, and with people at large. Continuing in Ezekiel 34, So the sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and over every hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search for and or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. Well, these are strong words, harsh words, and we know the history of Israel, Israel, that their leaders did not do as they should, and that God eventually brought judgment, and the people were scattered all over the face of the earth. And, and of course, that's the context of this passage. But even so, it's about shepherding in general. It's about what shepherds are to be doing, how they are to relate to their flock, what their ministry is. God passes judgment on self-serving shepherds and then goes on to state what he will do for his sheep. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. God, our shepherd, will seek and search out and rescue his lost sheep. Continuing in Ezekiel, And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. 
and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. God, our shepherd, will feed us, his sheep. He says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. God, our shepherd, calls, cares for, and protects his sheep. As we choose shepherds, the best of our ability, we must choose shepherds who follow the example and command of God, men who will be faithful under shepherds for him. We spent some time in the Old Covenant reviewing the shepherd's duties. Let us now turn to the New Covenant. John 10, again a familiar passage, starting at verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus then, the good shepherd, he fulfills those old covenant passages that we just read, faithfully putting the sheep before his own life. He, of course, is the example for elders and pastors in our churches, who are then examples for all of us to follow, to please him. Now, a number of these passages, particularly in the old covenant, talk about the sheep being scattered and driven away. And I want to touch on that just a little bit more. We've seen that bad shepherds drive the sheep away. In our day, this applies both to the local church and the larger church. And I have extended family members and friends who no longer attend the church. I have friends who have left one church to attend another, some for good reasons, but most for other reasons. I believe that the lack of being loved is the primary reason people leave churches. Consider some of the following reasons people leave and possible solutions they give. Lack of simple pastoral care. The elders and pastors must be active in their pastoral care. Personal offenses left unresolved. Elders and pastors must set example by resolving conflicts of which they are a part, including governmental actions and processes need to be men of reconciliation. Lack of ministry opportunities, no way to grow. Elders and pastors must set example of encouraging and preparing preparing and supporting congregants in every good work. For we are called by our Lord out of darkness into light to every good work. Overbearing elders and pastors, everything must be done their way. Need to engage elders and pastors in conflict resolution. The scripture talks about 
processes, publicly rebuke those who sin, encourage other elders to hold each other accountable. Good, they need to be good examples in all of this. And of course, disputes over doctrine. Elders and pastors must set example here of love over knowledge, of people accepting people where they are that they might grow, that their souls might be restored. The end goal of pastoral care, pastoral care is to restore the soul and when possible to restore the body. Leaving personal offenses unresolved eats at the body like a cancer. Genuine repentance and true forgiveness pave the way to full restoration of relationships. Pastors and elders must exemplify this. Ministry opportunities promote growth and maturity. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. The lack of ministry opportunities leaves the church focused on itself and not on others. Pastors and elders must not lord it over their flock nor demand their own way, but demonstrate God's love towards others. This means listening to others, edifying and building up others, engaging in open and honest discussion, including others who have a stake in the matter. Elder consensus can be just as unloving as an individual lack of love. We must always look to be edifying, building up, loving the sheep whom God has given. Regarding doctrinal differences, you know, our denominations... I believe do not please God. Um, that's not to say that God hasn't brought us to where we are. <laughs> but they are plainly visible indication that we place all sorts of things above love for one another. Baptism must be done this way. Communion means this. We must keep the Sabbath this way. We must do evangelism this way. And on and on and on. Paul comments on this in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 1. But I, brothers, could address you as spiritual people, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, but you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? The church has a bit of a history of this. We follow the Westminster Confession. We follow the Belgic Confession. We follow the London Confession. We proudly don't hold any confession. We belong to this denomination or that denomination. We practice, in practice, these are elevated to positions almost equal to the Scripture. Whatever happened to living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let us be like the Bereans and test all things against the word. Now, I'm not speaking mainly here of church differences within the CREC. I've been in the CREC for many years, familiar with the CREC Constitution. I think the CREC has done a great job in, in welcoming churches with a variety of backgrounds, a variety of practices, and requiring church membership to be transferable among these churches that may not even agree on some of these things. The, the CREC is doing 
and has in the past done a great job of working towards this. And uh, so I'm not criticizing here the CREC. But the church at large still is a problem. What does the world infer from such fierce individualism and territorialism of denominations? It infers that we are just like the world, each caring about our own issues more than we care about genuine love for one another. In short, very often, and I've heard this word frequently, the world considers the church to be hypocrites on this kind of matter. Think of why the church has no say or very little say in the public sphere today. Well, which one would you listen to? We simply do not have a common reference anymore. We do not provide a common view of who God is anymore. Well, what is the answer to these things? What is the answer to these things? And I give you a very trite answer. Love is the answer. (laughs) But it really isn't so trite as we look at it. John 13, 34 and 35 A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Is this not what the world, we want the world to see and to know? That we are the disciples of Christ. And how would that be more visible? How would that be visible, plainly visible? By our love for one another. Where in the world do you see this? This is what God calls us to, to make our love so strong, so deep, so visible that the world sees it and knows that we follow Christ. What will Christ's covenant church be known for? Will it be for doctrinal purity? To some degree, hopefully. Will it be for glorious worship? Amen. I love the worship here. The CREC churches I've been to, and I've had the pleasure of being to a number of them. Uh, There's no other place I would rather be on a Sunday morning for worship. But the real question is, will it be known for its love for one another and for the love of every person that this flock comes in contact with? John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Worth repeating again. Why? (laughs) That they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. God calls us to a deep love, a love, as I said, that is visible, unmistakable, and that people worldwide hunger for and want.
How will Christ's community, or Christ's covenant church, excuse me, be a beacon of light in a dark world? Again, will it be by doctrinal purity? Will it be by glorious worship? Or will it be by a fellowship that demonstrates a oneness, a unity born of the love of the Father that testifies to the life of the Son? Will this love transcend personal, doctrinal, even denominational boundaries? First Corinthians 13, again, a passage we're all familiar with. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This passage plainly states that love for one another is more important than even knowledge and doctrinal perfection. Elders and pastors must exemplify this. Yes, they are to teach the word, but how? In a manner that encourages all and edifies all and leads to good works. I address this topic because we in the reform world tend to be proud of our doctrinal positions, but, but what we should be proud of is our love for every believer, every Christian even if they differ from us on many doctrinal matters. As such, we should be careful in choosing elders and a pastor to choose men who love the brethren over and above all else, men who pursue the wanderers and return them to the flock. Our churches should be reconciling differences, not strengthening them. We should convey God's love by inviting others in and loving them rather than erecting walls to keep them out, for love does not insist on its own way. As we conclude today, let us consider specifically passage that talks about the end goals of shepherding. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Shepherds are there to facilitate this, to be examples, to help us grow in love for one another, to be knit together 
until we are able to edify and build ourselves up in love. In summary, the goals of shepherding are to restore men's souls, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to avoid being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, to grow believers in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now I ask you, who would leave such a church as that? (laughs) Unfortunately, sometimes people do. And when they do, they should be pursued. Because, and why do they, why are they not pursued? Sometimes it's because we want our own way. And if this offends others, that's their problem, not ours. I've been places where if it's not my way, it's the highway. But the truth is, it is our problem. God calls us to love one another, and our elders and pastors should lead in this by example. should be clear that the exhortations here are not just for elders, as I've pointed out numerous times, but for all of us. We are all to grow up into Christ, with every part working together, building the body up in love. The pastor and elders are to be the examples, but we are all being built up for every good work. One day, Christ will return. When will that be? When he has conquered all of his enemies. There will be no more sorrow and pain, no more doctrinal division, only a genuine love for one another founded in our Lord and Savior. From our point in history, this looks impossible. Yet, our Lord will accomplish it. My message to you today is to think bigger than the local church, to align yourself with Christ's long-term purposes, and to choose to align your goals and purposes with his, personally, corporately, and practically in the calling of your elders and pastor. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word that leads us so often so tenderly and carefully, that demonstrates your love towards us most graciously and directly through Jesus coming, being in our midst, showing us what can be done, what should be done, enabling us, Father, by your Spirit to walk in a manner similar to him and to please you. We ask, Father, that for Christ's covenant church that you will provide in due time a shepherd and that that shepherd that you provide will cause this church to grow in measure and maturity and glory in you. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've come to the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper is not just a time for us to think about Jesus dying on the cross. It's not a bad time to think about it. We do commemorate his death and resurrection through this meal, but this is not a time for sorrow. 
The sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Christ is alive. We read this, we sang this this morning. Uh, Death in vain forbids him rise. Christ hath opened paradise. As we come to the table, remember the victory that has been accomplished when you eat the bread and you drink the wine. Christ, through a grim and humiliating death, cast down the ruler of the age. By dying and rising again, Christ set the example for us also to die with him so that we might rise again. Again, we sang this this morning. Let's see if I can find it. So in in the uh, ours, the cross, the last line of verse four in uh, Christ the Lord is risen today, it says ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. So when we die and rise again with Christ, he he has set the example for us. Christ has given all of himself to us um, and all of himself to his church. And we get to experience that blessing right now. Through this symbolic feast of joy, we are experiencing the closest earthly version of what that final and glorious supper of the Lamb will be like. So, for those of you who are baptized, for those of you who are not under discipline of your local church, this table before you is for you. Come and welcome to Jesus. Will you stand for the charge and the, and the benediction? The charge is this. As we've heard preached this morning, we are to love one another. We are to be known not just for glorious worship, doctrinal purity, not just for caring about the things that we ought to care about, but that we might be known for our love for one another. So hear the benediction. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to, of, with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.